With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. January 11th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I am glad to see a number of you joining me over here in the Blog Talk radio chat room. People are refreshing at the top of the hour as usual. Jay in the chat room, on your mark, get set, refresh. That seems to be what the blog talk uh, service requires when you're listening live. If you go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you can check out my perhaps overly ambitious set of program notes that I have for today's show. The title of today's show is Nihilism in Obama's America. Nihilism in Obama's America just so happens that during this week when Obama has given his farewell address, that was yesterday as I'm doing the show live, there's a number of news stories that come up and remind you of the nihilism that he has helped foster during his eight years in office. There's a number of stories. Like I said, I've got a whole list. Go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com. Now, mind you, not all of the stories in the program notes are nihilist. And towards the end, I have a bit, you know, good news and a little bit of fun uh, stuff as well. So it's not all nihilist stuff. And and you'll have to listen to me as I go through the different stories and see what I have in mind uh, with respect to each of the links. But a number of these are examples of nihilism that Obama himself has helped to foster. And we start, of course, with the speech itself, I figure, okay, this is the last time that there's a major speech given by Barack Obama that I have the opportunity to shred. So I may as well take that opportunity. We're going to do that. But you'll see that there's also a number of news stories. We have Dylan Roof's sentencing. We'll talk a little bit about him. A bunch of lobbying to kill a nuclear power plant in New York. Hate crimes and jihad. And even the labeling of young Americans for freedom as a hate group 
social workers line, all sorts of examples of this. So like I said, go to don'tletitgo.com if you want to see the links for everything that I'm going to be talking about today. And if you would like to call in and talk to me about any of these stories, the number at which to do so is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. Jay in the chat room says about Obama's address, I love the four more years chant. <laughs> if there wasn't enough evidence that the progressives hate the Constitution. Yes, exactly. The, you know, at least he had the decency to say, no, I can't do that. Right. At least at least that. Um, you know, if he had said something like, if only I could or, you know, that he was wishing. But no, I guess he had the good sense to at least say no that he didn't have that if you do end up calling in and you want to do more than just listen make sure that you press the one button and that'll let me know that you're in the queue and you actually want to ask a question make a comment chime in on something over there so let's go ahead and then dive in with his address just to give you kind of an overview obama at first seems a little bit schizophrenic on this because he says on the one, and actually, I shouldn't use the, a psychological term. As I, as I'm going back last week, you know, and I'm telling you about my little black box view, and don't put a diagnosis on it. I'm not going to use a psychological term. He seems to contradict himself because, on the one hand, he's talking about all the accomplishments, so-called accomplishments, under his presidency, and then on the other hand, he's talking about these horrible trends and these horrible things that are going on in the country that have to be fixed. So there seems to be this contradiction in the beginning, but overall he talks about four different problems that he sees facing the country. These are the things that he thinks people who follow him should address their attention to in the next several years. Uh, Inequality, of course, racism, something that I can only title fake news as a problem, and then finally, complacency. When he talks about the values that he believes our country embodies and the things that are going to actually be used to address all of these problems, the words are really scary. Democracy. Now, democracy is a word that people on both sides of the political aisle throw around, and they throw it around erroneously. Whenever I think of democracy, it's it's very helpful if you think of democracy as Socrates drinking the hemlock. That's what so- that's what democracy means, right? If you actually talk about unlimited majority rule, which is what actual democracy is, that's not what we have in the United States. We have a constitutional republic. Yes, there is democratic elements. There's participation, uh, you know, in terms of voting and things like that. But we do not have a democracy, nor do we want a democracy. But he keeps throwing that term around as democracy is the value that we need to preserve. Uh, He talks about citizenship, that it's citizenship that motivates Americans to do great things, for example. And then finally, this idea of solidarity. So democracy, citizenship, and solidarity, all very collectivist notions. This is peppered throughout the speech. So that's kind of the over, yeah, yeah, Jay in the chat room says, tyranny of the mob. It's exactly what it is. So I'm going to go through, it turns out, I go to whitehouse.gov and I print these things out. I don't watch this man. 
uh, and I like to just read it in cold print to, to get an idea of what he's actually doing. So I'm going to go through, it's about 15 pages or so, but I've got some highlights here or there. So this is the last shredding. Bear with me. I think it's a little bit fun and worthwhile. At the beginning, he says that, you know, you, the audience, you made me a better president. I've learned from you. I've had these conversations with you. Translation, it's your fault if I'm a bad president. It's your fault that I'm a bad president, however you want to do it. On the next page, he actually talks about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He actually says the pursuit of happiness. He goes on to make the common error that rights are self-evident. No. Uh, But he says that, you know, these rights are not self-executing. He says, we the people through the instrument of our democracy can form a more perfect union. It's democracy. Again, he wants majority rule. He wants mob rule. Uh, Maybe he's leaning on democracy because Hillary Clinton supposedly won the popular vote. And he thinks that somehow that's a good thing to hang his hat on. I don't know. He's, He's talked about democracy a lot throughout his presidency. Now, And when he talks about the gift that our founders gave to us, there's two elements that he highlights. First, he talks about the freedom to chase our individual dreams. That's fine. But then he says, together with the imperative to strive together for a common good, a greater good. So on the one hand, yeah, you've got the freedom, you know, you pursue your individual dreams, but there's an imperative upon you to pursue a common good. The collectivism above all. Yeah, a little bit of freedom. Pursue your individual dreams. But remember, the imperative is the collective. And then there's this whole paragraph about how our call to citizenship is the thing that gives work and purpose to all of the great accomplishments in our country. It led patriots to choose republic over tyranny. Now he says republic, right? He, he wants to say it when he's trying to inspire you to, to the call to citizenship. Then he'll use the word republic, but not when he's really urging the value upon you. Then it's democracy. Anyway, uh, pioneers trek west, slaves to brave the makeshift road to freedom. It pulled immigrants and refugees across oceans in the Rio Grande, et cetera. It pushed women to reach for the ballot. It's all the call to citizenship is what inspired people to do all of these things. He says it's why the GIs gave their lives at Omaha Beach. Why not say it is the principle of individual rights, or at least say it's freedom? No, it's the call to citizenship that supposedly inspired all of these things. Uh, You know, our founding fathers, they chose republic over tyranny. They could have had citizenship with tyranny, right? Anyway, um, you know, or or you could go back and say, well, why is there a call to citizenship of the United States? It's because of individual rights, but no, it's this collective that he wants to emphasize. So then he wants to say, you know, a work of democracy has always been hard. Um, And so now he goes into the part, you know, first it's we've accomplished all this stuff, right? And then he wants to say the work of democracy is hard. He says, for every two steps forward, it often feels We take one step back. And the way I translate it is that, you know, if if you think that his presidency has been a step backwards, it's just a feeling. Really, we've taken two two steps forward, but it might feel to you, you know, when you get your health insurance bill 
or when you get the notification that your health insurance has been canceled, like one of my friends on Facebook just apparently received today. You know, she, like I, has been have been receiving over the last couple of years huge increases in the so-called health insurance premiums. This uh, extortion that is being given us right now. Uh, but instead, what she got was a notice that their policy is canceled entirely, and who knows what she's going to get as a substitute. So, you know, it might feel like you're taking a step back, but actually, you should know that you've been taking two steps forward under Obama. He says, what have we had? He says, the long sweep of America has been defined by forward motion. And the way he describes the forward motion, remember forward was one of his slogans for a bit, and I would describe it as forward over a cliff. The way he describes it is, quote, a constant widening of our founding creed to embrace all and not just some. Widening of our founding creed, you know, because individual rights is not enough. You have to widen it and create so-called rights to things that there are never really rights to, etc. It's this call to egalitarianism, this constant widening of our founding creed. He means a trend toward egalitarianism, which means if you're making supposedly everybody equal, what do you have to do? You have to destroy those who have more talent more ability, more productive ability in particular, and therefore it's nihilistic. Then he goes into a whole paragraph of his supposed accomplishments. The longest stretch of job creation in our history, you know, this is all the fudging of the job statistics, Uh, open up a new chapter with the Cuban people. Don't you love that really neutral sounding? It's a new chapter. Is it good? Is it bad? Who knows? Uh, he, he has the gall to say that we have shut down Iran's nuclear weapons program without firing a shot. Yeah, right. Um, of course, he has to talk about that we, you know, we've, we've taken out the mastermind of 9-11, Osama bin Laden. He mentions Osama bin Laden twice in this speech. You know, He couldn't mention it just once. Uh, what, uh, and obviously, it is good that he they took out Osama bin Laden, but was that really his thing? You know, was he really so responsible for it? Not so much. Um, we would win marriage equality. He talks about winning marriage equality. Now that wasn't really him so much as I think it was a function of litigation and the Supreme Court justices, but yeah, he'll take credit for it. He says, we've secured the right to health insurance for another 20 million of our fellow citizens. Um, first of all, a right to health insurance? No, he, there is no right to health insurance. He has forced people to pay for health insurance for other people. He has put a whole bunch of regulations onto companies to ensure that all of these people would get so-called health insurance. And I've talked in the past about how what we have is no longer health insurance anymore. It's not even legal to buy real health insurance anymore. That sort of plan is no longer legal. What you're buying is a voucher prepaid for some sort of health care that you may or may not get or may or may not need. Because if you're a man, you're paying for maternity care. And if you don't even have children, I think you're still paying for pediatric dental. There's all sorts of stuff that's going on here. Um, 
Anyway, so he says, you know, if I had told you that we were going to accomplish all these wonderful things, you might have said that our sights were set a little bit too high, he says, but that's what we did. He says, that's what you did. So, again, it's a little thing. You did it. I'm going to blame it on you if it, if it goes bad. You were the change, et cetera, he goes on to say. Um, towards the bottom of this page, he's saying, we remain the wealthiest, most powerful, and most respected nation on earth. If so, I want to say it's no thanks to him. And in fact, I put an article in the program notes from Victor Davis Hansen from a couple of years ago, where Hansen was making the point that insofar as anything good has happened, it's happened despite Obama, not because of Obama. So if all these things remain true, if they do, and I would you know, wonder whether they do, it's not because of him. The future should be ours, he says. Don't shit on us. Uh, Now, he says, the potential will will be realized only if our democracy works. And he says, only if all of us, regardless of our party affiliation, affiliation, help restore the sense of common purpose. And he says, he wants to talk about the state of our democracy. What are the threats to democracy? And he says, you know, okay, democracy doesn't require uniformity. No, of course, democracy doesn't require uniformity. All it requires is that you submit to majority rule, even if you don't agree with everybody, right? No, it doesn't. But then he does a little appeal to authority. He says, our founders argued. They quarreled. He says, eventually, they compromised. They expected us to do the same. Now, it's easy for Obama. He's going out. Uh, We've got Republican majorities in the House and the Senate. We've got Trump elected as president. Of course, he's going to appeal to the authority of the founding fathers to urge compromise in this situation, right? If it was Hillary in office and there were Democratic majorities in both chambers, I don't see that he would be doing this, but that's what he's doing. Uh, Again, he's talking about the founders here appealing to their authority, quote, They knew democracy does require a basic sense of solidarity. Solidarity he's appealing to here. The idea that for all our outward differences, we're all in this together, that we rise or fall as one. And again, when you think of democracy, I just keep thinking Socrates drinking the hemlock. That's what democracy means. Someone as good as Socrates with a mind like him drinking hemlock. He says, there's been moments throughout our history that threaten the solidarity, and there's been all these threats at the beginning of our country. And then he says, the way that we meet the challenges of terrorism and inequality, um, you know, et cetera, that this is going to determine our future. Uh, what's the first challenge? The first challenge, of course, is inequality. He now thinks he can pat himself on the back and say the wealthy are now paying a fairer share of taxes. And he says, even as the stock market shatters records. Now, why is the stock market shattering records right now? For better or for worse, I don't know whether it's reflecting a true assessment of the future, but it's because of Donald Trump winning. That is why the stock market is shattering records. But Obama's going to take credit for it here in his speech. So he says, look, you know, 
The wealthy are paying a fair share of taxes because of him, and the stock market is shattering records. You know, don't look at the real cause and effect, but just look at those two things together and just, you know, go with me on the idea that it's because of me or it's that, look, you know, even though they're paying the fair share, it's allowing the stock market to shatter records. So everything is fine. We can achieve this equality without destruction of the economy, he's trying to say. Uh, If the stock market is continuing to shatter records and if it's because of a realistic assessment of the future, it's because the future is going to be something different than what Obama has been doing. That's what we're being promised under Trump. Anyway, uh, he says the unemployment rate is near a 10-year low. Now, that's only because they fudge rate. Again, if you go to CNS News, you will see constantly a an analysis of the labor statistic reports that will show you that the labor force participation rate continues to be like at a three decade low constantly. Yeah. Uh, Redmond MTB in the chat room adds, this is fed pumping to a large extent as well, right? Trying to make it all look good as he leaves the office so he can have a legacy. You can, you know, he cannot take credit for this. He cannot say, Oh, look, you know, we can steal more money from the wealthy and everything will still be fine and wonderful in the in the market out there. Healthcare costs, he says, are rising at the slowest rate in 50 years. That's a bunch of garbage as well. Again, you know, everyone is seeing the cost of healthcare real time in the increases in premiums that they faced. 12%. I mean, typically what I've had to do is each year have a policy that covers slightly less and pay 12 or 13% more each month for my premiums. That's what I've been having to do ever since Obamacare has been enacted. And I'm pretty sure that everybody else has endured at least that much. And like I said, several friends uh, right now have had the specter of no policy at all that they have to go out and try to find new insurance as opposed to just kind of stick with what they've got or something sort of like what they've got. Um, and then he makes, of course, the most generous offer. If you can find a healthcare system that covers as many people at less cost, I'll publicly support it. Yeah. If you can square the circle, I'll publicly support it, he says. We all know it's not possible. What they're trying to do is they're trying to make reality other than what it is. Um, now, again, he's talking about this whole call, you know, inequality. Uh, Stark inequality is corrosive to our democratic ideal. And then he says at a certain point, you know, people get convinced that the game is fixed uh, against them, that the government serves only the interests of the powerful. And he says that's a recipe for more cynicism and polarization in our politics. If you actually go through and look at this whole paragraph where he's talking about the so-called economic argument about inequality and why it's corrosive to the democratic ideal. What he's doing is he's trying to say that this inequality, because it wasn't addressed adequately, led to Trump getting elected. That, you know, fixing inequality is the panacea for everything, including making sure that somebody like Trump doesn't get into office. And he says, well, there are no quick fixes, you know, so on the one hand, he's achieved so much, but nope, there are no quick fixes. Uh, to this long-term trend of inequality corroding our democracy. 
And he says, you know, uh, yeah, fine, Trump, our trade should be fair and not just free. Free trade is fair trade um, on any rational definition of fairness, but whatever. Obama is fine now with uh, interfering with trade, I guess, as well. He's going to go ahead and concede that. He says, but the next wave of economic dislocations won't come from overseas. It's going to come from the, quote, relentless pace of automation. The relentless pace of automation, as if it's a, automation is a bad thing. He says that's going to make a lot of good middle-class middle jobs obsolete. Now, what it's going to do, automation, of course, is make work more productive and actually end up giving people more time for leisure activities and to actually think about things, you know, their, themselves, their own lives, improving their own lives. I was reading a bit of de Tocqueville yesterday and he was talking about how um, originally in the ancient world the type of freedom that people were content with was just participation in democracy and then whatever the outcome of the democracy whether it meant you know Socrates drinks the hemlock okay you know we participated so everything's cool and now that you know people were working this is in de Tocqueville's time when people are working you know, they're concerned with their own lives and they want freedom to pursue their own interests. They want actual substantive freedom, not just the, the ability to participate and then, you know, accept whatever comes out of the, you know, the black box of participation in democracy, right? Um, you know, you're not just going to accept whatever's presented to you. You want freedom to pursue your own life. You're working and trading and there's commerce and everything else. And um, now we're getting to the stage, right, with all this automation that people are going to have a lot of time on their hands again, and they're going to want both freedom and participation. Imagine that. They're going to want to actually feel like they have uh, some kind of say over their own lives with respect to the government, and they're going to want to be able to pursue their own interests and have substantive freedom as, as well. So, uh, yeah, people in the chat room just talking about Obama. Um, yeah, Obamacare says James, the economy sucked and then premiums deduct deductibles shot up due to him. Yeah, he he has definitely made everything worse. A lot of of lies in here. Uh, so what does he say we're going to have to do? Because now we're going to have the relentless pace of automation. It's going to take away these middle class jobs. He says we're going to have to forge a new social compact to do what to guarantee all our kids the education that they need. Very Rawlsian idea, right? This idea that we're going to have a social compact that's going to give a certain amount of equality, update our social safety net, he says, to reflect the way we live now. What he may have in mind there is something that I've heard kind of bandied about, this idea of a guaranteed minimum income because, you know, everything's being automated and so all these jobs will be gone. And so instead of you actually figuring out how to make yourself productive in a new type of economy – you should just be guaranteed a minimum income so you can do community organizing on the dole, right? That's really what he wants a whole bunch of people to be able to do is do a bunch of community organizing on the dole. There's a lot of calls to community organize in this speech. Then, of course, corporations and individuals who reap the most from the new economy should not avoid their, quote, obligations to the country that's made their very success possible. End quote. If you are succeeding, it's your country that's made that possible, and you have obligations that you must pay 
to your country. Now, he says, we can argue about how to best achieve the goals, right? He's giving you a goal. The goal is it's got to be equality, some sort of equality, not necessarily complete egalitarianism, but kind of a Rawlsian egalitarianism where you keep redistributing. And this is the way I always understand Rawls. You keep redistributing until you can no longer make any more, uh, excuse me, the least well-off. You can no longer make the least well-off any better off by further redistributions of wealth. So it's not complete equality because Rawls agrees, yeah, you know, if you let Steve Jobs keep more of his money, that might be a good thing in terms of continuing to make the least well-off better off. So not total equality, but you just keep redistributing up to that point where you can no longer, by further redistributions, make the least well-off any better off. This is the sort of egalitarianism that he wants. So he said, okay, you know, we can argue about how to best achieve the goals, but we better do it. We have to do it. You can't argue about the goal. And what is what has he got behind it? Why? He's got a threat. He says, if we don't create opportunity for all people, the disaffection and division that has stalled our progress will only sharpen in the years to come, end quote. That's social unrest that he's threatening there. So fix the equality or you're going to have social unrest. Uh, second threat, he says, of course, is the issue of racism. And many of us would argue that racism, racism has only gotten worse under Obama. Um, and he says, all of us have more work to do. He says, if every economic issue is continuing to be framed as a struggle between a hardworking white middle class and an undeserving minority, he says, then workers of all shades are going to be left fighting for scraps while the wealthy withdraw further into their private enclaves, end quote. Now, what does this remind you of? He's basically talking about what sort of so-called, you know, framing and struggle led to Trump getting elected. He sees a Trump presidency as something that's going to result only in, quote, the wealthy withdrawing further into their private enclaves. The idea that Trump might actually make some elements of our economy a little more free and therefore actually create real opportunity, or at least allow real opportunity to exist for people. Uh, you know, no, that's, that's not allowed. So, you know, again, he's talking about the reasons you know, he's saying basically, if you had solved the problems that I presented to you, equality and racism and stuff, we wouldn't we wouldn't have Trump. Uh, then he talks about that we should be willing to quote invest in the children of immigrants. Invest, of course, means spend tax dollars, have more money of of yours stolen to be given to education and everything else for the children of immigrants. He says, well, if you don't want to do this, you want to do it. You don't want to do it just because they don't look like us. You're a racist if you disagree with, quote, investing in the children of immigrants. Um, and then he says, look, look, the economy doesn't have to be a zero sum game. He says last year he throws you a statistic that means nothing out of context. He says last year incomes rose for all races, all age groups for men and for women. Now, is that among those who are still in the workforce? Is it because of welfare and redistribution? So on average, income from any source is higher. Blank out, who knows? Um, he, didn't, he doesn't give you any context for his statistic there. So what are we going to do about race? He says we have to uphold laws against 
discrimination. So government force comes in and saves the day. Uh, discrimination, hiring, housing, education, and also the criminal justice system. Again, what does discrimination mean in the criminal justice system? Does it really mean that law enforcement is done only on the basis of race? Or is he saying, look, what we need to do is regardless of whether it just happens to be the case that crimes are committed disproportionately by a certain racial group, we should only enforce according to the percentage of the population that that racial group represents or something. It's, it's ridiculous. Uh, if people commit a crime or they don't and they deserve to have a penalty or they don't, and it shouldn't be a matter of race. He says, laws won't be enough. Our hearts must change. And then he quotes Atticus, Atticus Finch in uh, a passage here that sounds pretty ad hominem. You never really understand a person until you understand things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it, end quote. And so is the idea that you can never really understand. Uh, he does, of course, then try to urge people to understand others' points of view, but if you listen to the language, it's interesting. He talks about for black and other minority groups, they have their, quote, own very real struggles for justice. But nonetheless, they should try to understand the middle-aged white guy, and this is quoting from Obama, the middle-aged white guy who, from the outside, may seem like he's got advantages, but has seen his world upended by economic and cultural and technological change end quote. You could hear in you know Obama's mind the little violin is being played, right? That, that somehow, you know, their struggles are very real, very real struggles for justice. But this middle-aged white guy, it's just all about his world has been upended by economic and cultural and technological change. Oh, the poor guy, Obama like wants to pat him on the back. He says, we have to pay attention and listen. Now, mind you, all Obama's saying is pay attention and listen, and then go ahead and proceed to violate that guy's rights. It's totally cool. As long as you pay attention and listen to the poor slob, it's awesome. Um, yeah. Now, white Americans, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to acknowledge that the effects of slavery and Jim Crow didn't suddenly vanish in the 60s. And, you know, people, when they're waging peaceful protests, they're not demanding special treatment but the equal treatment that our founders promised. Now, listen, if you have anti-discrimination laws, you are applying force. And in many cases, there's a whole bunch of affirmative action that is being forced on to people. This is not what the founding fathers promised. The founding fathers did not promise to magically take away by the force of government everybody's irrationality about race. But that's what Obama is calling for. Native-born Americans, he says, remind ourselves, you know, that immigrants have been this tremendous value. And he's talking about Irish, Italians, and Poles in the past. We said they were going to destroy the fundamental character of America. And he says, as it turned out, uh, skipping a little bit, he says, the newcomers embraced this nation's creed, and this nation was strengthened, end quote. Okay, fine, Obama, that's true. But a lot of these newer immigrants are not embracing our nation's creed. They're wanting to start little enclaves governed by their own set of values, right? So it's, it's not the same. 
It, it is not the same. Uh, sure, we want to welcome people here who actually want to embrace what our nation stands for, individualism, the principle of individual rights, laissez-faire capitalism. Sure, I would love more of those people to come here, but that's not what he wants to talk about. He wants to talk about, hey, if people embrace democracy and solidarity and the obligation to work for a common good that somehow we're supposed to accept that. He said, start with the premise that each of our fellow citizens loves this country just as much as we do. So start with a premise that isn't true, right? And then he says that the children of these immigrants accept this. You're supposed to accept that they're just as curious and hopeful and worthy of love as our own children. You're supposed to love others' children like yours. Um, now, he says, that's not easy to do. He says, what you like to do is retreat into your own bubbles. And he talks about the bubbles. I always talk about a social media bubble. But he's got this whole paragraph talking about people retreat into their own bubbles and they're not open to viewpoints different from their own. We see the rise of naked partisanship, regional stratification, again, shades of Trump getting elected, um, He's equivocating in this whole paragraph. He, on the one hand, he's talking about allowing your assumptions to be challenged, uh, you know, allowing people to persuade each other. That's on the one hand. But, but he thinks that if you just were open to new ideas, that somehow you would agree to sacrifice yourself to endure the rights violations that he's talking about. Again, what is he talking about? He's talking about government force to create racial equality in our country. He wants to impose that. And you would agree to that if you just weren't you know, closing your mind off in your little social media bubble and if you weren't so close to, to argument and to evidence, that's not true. Um, and then, of course, the other type of sacrifice that he's calling for is for you to give up more of your tax dollars so that immigrant children can be educated on your dime. You know, of course, we should get rid of that for everybody. We need to privatize education across the board. But he wants to double down and have you pay not only for the education of American children, but also for immigrant children. So then he talks about another threat to the democracy. And again, the best way I can describe this threat is so-called fake news, because he says we need a, quote, common baseline of facts. And then he says we also need a willingness to admit new information. And the, uh, the example that he ends up giving is climate change. But let me give you a little bit more of the language that he's talking about here. Um, he, he talks about that basically people have double standards. You know, they're, how do we excuse ethical lapses in our own political party, but pounce when the other party does the same thing? He says it's not just dishonest. He says it's this selective sorting of the facts. It's self-defeating. So he's saying that people are engaging in a selective sorting of facts about the world. And if you think about this, right, what is it that people do? I mean, we take in all the facts of the world around us. And of course, we sort them according to our values, the things that are important to us. What does this fact in the world mean to me, given my hierarchy of values in my own life? But you're not supposed to do that, according to Obama. You're not supposed to selectively sort facts. 
right? And, and here you're not even talking about fake news. You're just talking about news presented from any particular viewpoint, say like my show. He doesn't want you to look at the world through the lens of any values whatsoever, or at least not your own values. You know, if, if, if it's his values, I think that's fine. And that's what he goes on to say here when he starts talking about climate change. He says, take the, the challenge of climate change. Uh, at first, he's trying to say, look, you know, we've halved our dependence on foreign oil. Of course, that's due to fracking. It's not due to him. He says, we've doubled our renewable energy, so-called renewable energy. How have we done that? We've done that by government force. And I wonder at what cost, if, assuming we have done that. He says, we've led the world to an agreement that has the promise to save this planet. A, can it save the planet? Um, from the so-called warming or change or whatever, that's debatable. If it does save the planet, in what state is it saving the planet? For whom is it usable for human beings? No, this is all nihilism. He wants to destroy the planet in terms of the planet providing a habitable place for us to live. But he says, what do we need? He says, we need bolder action. We need more government force. Bolder action is what he calls for. He won't say it's force. Uh, he says, otherwise, our children won't have time to debate the existence of climate change. He says, they're going to be de dealing with all of these effects, economic disruptions, waves of climate refugees. Just give them some air conditioning and they are not going to be refugees anymore. You know, that's true, right? So he says, you know, we, we can and should argue about the best approach to solve the problem. He says, but you can't deny the problem. So what is the problem? He wants to define the problem, and he wants you to solve it, right? What is reason for? Reason is only for solving problems. You know, and, and people who are familiar with Atlas Shrugged, you'll find a way, Mr. Reardon. He wants to dictate what the problem is. It's equality, racism, climate change. I give you the problem. And I frame the problem and you solve it in my terms. So what's the problem? The problem is human beings are making too much of a footprint on this planet. And so therefore you have to figure out some way to reduce it and go ahead and still keep living if you can while you, while you do that. Um, and then what does he do? Instead of actually using the platform that he has to tell you why it's a real problem that actually needs to be solved, because you know, again, if you look at the climate change problem from the human perspective, I think you reach the same conclusion that Alex Epstein does, which is, yeah, maybe there's some warming due to the consumption of fossil fuels. But in the grand scheme of things, which is that we want to improve the quality of human life on this planet, we're going to keep consuming fossil fuels, that the climate change that's resulting from it, to the extent that there is some, is not enough of an issue. It's not as catastrophic as these people want to make it seem to be. And so it's no reason to bring in, you know, government force, so-called bolder action, bolder action to use Obama's term. But what does Obama do? Instead of actually using this great platform that he has to make a real argument as to why it's so catastrophic that we need bolder action, instead he just appeals to emotion. He says, it's in the spirit, you know, because again, he wants you to fix the problem. He says, it's in that spirit born of the enlightenment that made us an economic powerhouse, the spirit that took flight at Kitty Hawk and Cape Canaveral, 
the spirit that cures diseases and put a computer in every pocket. Just appeal to the awesomeness of Steve Jobs and inspire people to solve his problem the way he frames it, right? And he goes on. There's a bunch of other stuff as well. Um, then he says, you know, the the order of the world where we've got the rule of law and human rights and independent press is being challenged why there's autocrats in foreign capitals who see free markets and open democracy and civil society itself as a threat to power. I think this is an allusion to, to Brexit, that somehow Brexit means that they see free markets as a threat. And of course, there is some element of they didn't want to have so much commerce within the EU. There's some people who know, but mostly Brexit was a move toward freedom not away from freedom, but that he doesn't want to characterize it that way. Uh, people have a fear of change, right? They have an intolerance of dissent and free thought. Um, you know, of course he, of course, you know, in, uh, loves dissent and free thought as evidenced by attack watch, which is something that he did. Then he, then he goes on to talk about uh, his record on terrorism. He has the gall to say that no foreign terrorist organization has successfully planned and executed an attack on our homeland these past eight years. Everything else, it's just radicalization. And then he brings in uh, Osama bin Laden again, of course. So, you know, don't give in to fear. You know, we still need to be tolerant, he's trying to say, right? Um still need to uphold the, the rule of law. He makes an allusion to the fact that we have, quote, reformed our laws governing surveillance to protect privacy and civil liberties, end quote. That's what he said. He didn't name the USA Freedom Act uh, specifically, but that's what he's alluding to here. <sighs> you know, the fact that he has been given the opportunity to pardon Snowden and it's actually Edward Snowden who is responsible for the reforms. These reforms would never have taken place under Obama's watch but for Edward Snowden. But instead, Obama's going to take credit for it and at the same time not pardon Snowden, which is one of the few things that he could do to actually have a legacy that's worth something. Then he talks about, well, you know, we cannot withdraw from, from big global fights intervention abroad. He wants to make sure, you know, under Trump, we should still keep intervening. This is part of defending America to go ahead and pursue things that are not really in American self-interest. No, that's not true. And, you know, warns about ISIS. He calls them ISIL. They're going to try to kill innocent people, but we can't let that defeat America. We have to uphold our principles. Same with Russia and China, uphold our principles. Um, now, what do we have to do? He says our democracy also is threatened whenever we take it for granted. We need to rebuild our democratic institutions. What's the evidence that we need to rebuild our democratic institutions? It's because Trump won. Therefore, we must do that. Uh, we have to make it easier, not harder to vote. A little nihilistic stab there. He wants you to not have to show ID at a polling place. That's an allusion to getting rid of the ID requirement. We have to have more transparency. Of course, he has had one of the least transparent presidencies that there is, but no, more transparency. We want, of course, under Trump, he wants more transparency. We want to, he wants to redraw congressional districts. 
That's something he's calling for. And according to what he says, encourage politicians to cater to common sense and not rigid extremes. Extremism is bad. Even if it's extremism in the favor of upholding individual rights, that would be bad. That would be a rigid extreme. I suggest that he go back and read his letters from Birmingham jail because Martin Luther King is awesome on extremism. Uh, He says, remember, none of this, all these things that he wants to have happen again. You know, we have to rebuild our democratic institutions. We have to get rid of the voter ID requirement, more transparency. Uh, I guess we just need WikiLeaks. We'll have tons of transparency, right? Uh, Redraw those congressional districts. And then, of course, we can win Democrats in 2020. That's what he's calling for. He doesn't say it, but that's what he's calling for. It all depends on participation your responsibility of citizenship. So that's when he's calling you to go ahead and get active. He goes ahead and quotes George Washington, but he tries to make George Washington seem like some sort of collectivist. Uh, He starts out accurately because George Washington wrote that self-government is the underpinning of our safety, prosperity, and liberty. But then he quotes to make him seem like a collectivist, you know, that we should reject, quote, the first, dawning of every attempt to alienate any portion of our country from the rest or to enfeeble the sacred ties, end quote, that make us one. Now, make us one, he, that's his, Obama's words. But, you know, if we are one, according to what are we one? We are one according to the principle of individual rights, the American spirit of individualism. But he rejects that. Again, this whole speech has been about democracy, solidarity, right? Um, What was the third word again? Citizenship, yeah. Democracy, citizenship, and solidarity. That's what it's been about this entire speech. Um, But yeah, um, at the very end, it, it talks about, you know, what is the most important office in a democracy? Citizen, citizen. He wants you to be proud to have the title of citizen. Above all, what are you supposed to do? Look out for each other. We have an obligation to care for refugees. Above all, look out for each other. And then at the end, he says, maybe you can't still believe it, but we pulled the whole thing off. We pulled the whole thing off, he said. Uh, What has he done? Probably fundamentally transformed the United States, but history is going to have to be the judge of that. So that was his speech. Oh, people are having a little bit of technical difficulties there in the in the chat room I'm seeing. Blog talk can get pesky with ads and stuff sometimes. I know that that happens. Um, I've got one caller who's sitting there. If you do want to go ahead and comment on Obama's last nihilistic speech, I mean, where are the elements of nihilism in there in the call for government force all over the place, which is forcing people to act against their judgment, but the explicit calls for egalitarianism, the explicit calls to take bold action against climate change, which means against energy, freedom, and and progress. Um, All sorts of of calls for nihilism. The idea of getting any sort of restrictions in actually participating in the political process out of the way, redrawing congressional districts in ways that favor his party, et cetera. 
Uh, Tim in the chat room has a link that he's giving us from Daily Caller. Obama refers to himself 75 times in farewell address. I haven't even looked at that. Professor, Professor personal pronoun. Yeah, you could call him that. Obama, you could definitely call him that. Gosh, I've used nearly an hour analyzing that speech of Obama. So now we have to actually go over to the blog and see if we can play catch up on a lot of these stories. Uh, I gave you the link to pardonsnowden.org. There are a precious few days left in which Obama could do this. And one of the things that that organization effectively did out on Twitter is say, look, Obama, you're taking credit for this. This is something that any, you know, to the extent that there's been privacy reform in this country, it's pretty meager. But to the extent that there has been reform, it's been due to Snowden. And Snowden, if anybody would deserve a pardon, if it's worth taking credit for, it's worth pardoning Snowden for. Like I said, Obama nihilists are just incompetent. You can refresh your memory from that Victor Davis Hanson article. Another thing that happened this week is Dylan Roof sentenced to death in the Charleston Church massacre. In reading the two stories that I've got there from the New York Times, one just talks about the actual sentencing and some of the things that happened during the sentencing proceeding and stuff. Um, and, And also reading a little bit about the jailhouse manifesto piece. I get the impression that there, he may not actually be put to death for quite a long time, if ever, and there may be some challenging of the death sentence in this case because people will either think that there there was too much of a rush to find him mentally competent to stand trial, and a lot of people have a hard time believing that he could be mentally competent to stand trial given all of the decisions that he made and the things that he said throughout. Um, but yeah, he was, he was sentenced to death. He showed no remorse up to the very end. As far as I know, I think some proceedings are still going on, but he has not uh, said he was going to present any witnesses on, on his behalf. And whereas the judge in the sentencing proceeding denied an objection that was objecting to the character of some of the evidence that was presented by the victims, um, they, the people were saying that it, this sounded more like a memorial service and not like a sentencing hearing. The judge went ahead and overruled the objection, but nonetheless told the prosecution side to go ahead and just kind of limit the number. And it makes sense because if Roof is not going to present any witnesses on his own behalf in that, then um, then go ahead. Now, some people were saying, well, maybe he actually wanted to be killed And so you shouldn't give him what he wants. You should give him the life sentence. But in fact, in his manifesto, he showed a desire to live so that he could see the fruits of what he thinks he may have instigated. In the second New York Times piece that I linked to, it talks about the fact that Roof emphasized that what he wanted to do in massacring these nine people in the church in June of 2015 He wanted to incite others to join him in fomenting a race war. Quote from him, he says, I did what I thought would make the biggest wave. And he says, and now the fate of our race is in the hands of my brothers who continue to live freely. 
He says he would rather live in prison knowing I took action for my race than live with the torture, the torture of sitting idle. And he says, I want to live now. I want to see a future. I want to help make the way. He thinks that Adolf Hitler is someday, someday going to be in, uh, inducted as a saint. And he says, unless you take violent action, we as, quote, white people have no future. Uh, this is pure, of course, unadulterated nihilism to go in and take some of the most peaceful and loving people in the world and gun them down because of their race is about as, as crude and awful and horrible as it gets. I've, uh, you can pull it up yourself if you want, but Ayn Rand in the Ayn Rand lexicon, you can see some quotations from her essay, racism. So if you, just Google Ayn Rand and racism. She condemned it in the strongest terms. She says, racism is the lowest, most crudely primitive form of collectivism. The notion of ascribing moral, social, or political significance to a man's genetic lineage. The notion that a man's intellectual and characterological traits are produced and transmitted by his internal body chemistry which means in practice a man is to be judged not by his own character and actions, but by the characters and actions of a collective of ancestors. So again, nihilism in the name of collectivism, just of a, a different type. So, I, you know, I would say I'm not typically that excited about the death penalty, but for someone like Dylan Roof, where it's clear that he is the guilty one, that he's showing absolutely no remorse, and he seems to understand clearly what he's done, I would not be opposed to it. And it's really going to be a shame if we spend tons and tons of tax dollars entertaining challenges from him in the years, maybe a decade or something to come, which can happen in some, in some of these cases. More examples of nihilism. This is an article that Stephanie Gutman tagged me uh, in the comments to on Facebook. So thanks for sending that my way, Stephanie. Working for natural gas interests, former Cuomo aides lobbied to kill the Indian Point nuclear plant. Now, this Indian Point nuclear plant apparently provides a huge chunk of the electricity that's required, I believe, for the city itself. Obviously, I don't live back east. But the idea that you're going to shut down a nuclear plant today when we're talking about, and you're going to do it in favor of the use of fossil fuels, which, yes, I do think we should use fossil fuels, but I think nuclear is a wonderful source of power, and it's very clean. Maybe it could be expensive to start some new plants, but why would you shut down a perfectly good operating nuclear plant that provides a huge chunk of the nuclear requirements of a city or part of a state or et cetera and do it because of old-fashioned lobbying by fossil fuel interests? Well, call that corrupt government and call it corrupt government in the Democratic side. That's about as nihilist as it gets to actually shut down a plant that is perfectly good and providing a great source of, of power. Yes, let's have fossil fuels, but let's let them compete on the free market with nuclear and with other sorts of power that may come about. More examples of nihilism. You know, again, some of these are just are isolated, but you are seeing it 
everywhere in the last week or so. Hate crime charges have been filed after a, a reprehensible they have to put this in quotes. I can't believe that they have to put this in quotes in the headline. Reprehensible video shows attack on mentally ill man in Chicago. I guess I guess they're supposed to put it in quotations. But it seems pretty clear that it is reprehensible, that you don't have to take it on some sort of authority that it is reprehensible. Really, I share this in part to say, look, we will actually use the label of hate crime when the crime is against a white person in the name of hatred for Donald Trump and white people and all this stuff. The thing that's a bit disturbing about this example is that, you know, it's not clear whether the hate crime label was used only because the victim was disabled. That's really the question. Uh, It says, when asked whether the hate crime charges stemmed from the 18-year-old's mental health or his race, both of which are factors listed in the state's hate crime statute. Duffin said, quote, it's half a dozen of one, six of the other, end quote. So they don't want to be pinned down to say that, yes, if somebody commits a crime and says that they're doing it because somebody's white or a supporter of Trump or whatever, that somehow that will be called a hate crime, just as it would be if someone is doing the same thing because the victim is black or gay or a supporter of, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton or uh, Obama or whoever, right? Um, If you're going to enforce, I mean, I'm against hate crime statutes, just to be clear. Uh, The content of the reason why you're doing something intentionally and brutally should not be a aggravating factor in terms of the types of penalties that you get, the sort of charge or procedure, et cetera. it should matter, yes, whether it's intentional or whether it's a so-called crime of passion. Those sorts of things are traditional in the common law as either aggravating or mitigating factors. Is it premeditated? Is it just intentional in the moment? Is it something that's done a crime of passion, you know, maybe not even fully intentional? Uh, those are categories that are traditional in the common law, and there's good reason for them. But the idea that you're going to discriminate against criminals on the basis of the content in their mind when they intentionally committed a brutal crime, I I think that's wrong. That being said, if you're going to do it, it's interesting to say, well, would you go ahead and enforce it as a hate crime, even if the victim is somebody who is white, and the reason that they're doing it is because he's white and therefore is probably a Trump supporter, right? Uh, You should do that. But this guy, Duffin, he punts, you know, um, but he wants to say that the, you know, the, the hate crime charges are warranted. Why? Because the victim has diminished mental capacity. But is that why they didn't, you know, hate him because of diminished mental capacity. He just made an easy target far as I can tell. You know, he was physically unable to defend himself. It's, it's horrific, the, the nihilism there. And, and the idea of not standing up and saying, okay, you know, if we're going to enforce a hate crime statute, we're going to do it equally whenever hatred because of membership in a group is present. That's terrible. It's just terrible. Let me go over to the, okay, the, the studio. I've got the caller. But like I said, if you do want to call in, and talk 760-888-5817 is the number to do it. Make sure to press one if you want to chime in as well. Herman the German says that Dylan Roof deserves death. 
Jay says, send Roof to Texas. We won't screw around. Yeah, if that could only be. Who knows what's going to happen in his, in his home state. Um, Rob Abiera is putting a link here in the chat room to a new jihad attack in a Spanish supermarket. And, of course, in my program notes, I've got a story about the jihad attack a few days ago. Airport shooter converted to, this is the Florida airport shooter, he converted to Islam and identified as a Sheikh Hamad years before joining the army. So I ask you, what sort of self-sacrificial and nihilistic premise do you have if you admit into the army somebody who has converted to Islam and identified as a Sheikh Hamad? Uh, in the past. So this is before joining the armies. They have all of this record on this guy. And yet he was walking free and ended up able to do this. There are links in the article that I gave you to the records, the evidence that they are alluding to. And you can check that out and evaluate for yourself. I'm not going to go into it too much because, you know, you have to say, okay, is this exactly the same guy that they're talking about who made these posts? on these blogs and things like that. It's, it's pretty horrible stuff and it, it seems fairly convincing, but you know, this isn't a question of you evaluating the evidence. If that evidence exists, why do these people, you know, why are they left free by our authorities and, and made able to do this at UW Madison? There is a chapter of young Americans for freedom that has been labeled a hate group. So the Student Coalition for Progress at the University of Wisconsin-Madison recently pushed a petition that alleged University of Wisconsin-Madison's Young Americans for Freedom chapter is a hate group, and its members and efforts, quote, create a hostile environment on campus. Now, what is Young Americans for Freedom, a conservative student organization? They aim to promote free market economics and Reagan-esque principles. The petition, which is titled, quote, Denounce Young Americans for Freedom and the Alt-Right, end quote, also recommended that Young Americans for Freedom members be subjected to, quote, intensive diversity training. Petition was launched about a month after Young Americans for Freedom hosted Ben Shapiro on campus to speak about microaggressions, safe spaces, and free speech. Ben Shapiro, He's a good, mild person and a pretty clear thinker. Uh, I think if he gives a speech, it is not, you know, somebody who is, quote, creating a hostile environment on campus. Says the petition decried Shapiro's visit, claiming it made minority students feel unsafe and accused Shapiro of denying, quote, systematic and institutional violences, end quote, along, uh, against so-called marginalized communities. You know, this is the same old story that there are students on college campuses who want to be sheltered from opinions different from their own. And of course, the call for this has gotten more and more, uh, I would say robust, maybe that would be the the word to use over the past, I don't know, months and, and decades or so. Now, right now, I, you know, I experience on it on the campus that I'm teaching there are so many people who are so scared of what's going to happen under Trump, in some cases, I think, irrationally so.
so that their the campuses have gone sort of out of their way to provide comfort and safe spaces and stuff for people who are crying because Trump has won. And it is quite a bit of an overreaction. You know, but this idea that if you are pushing for freedom, free markets, and Reagan-esque policies, that you are therefore a hate group is, is just ridiculous. Um, now, this is an even worse example of nihilism today. And this is here in the state of California, a story from OC Weekly. Judges reject Orange County's claim that social workers didn't know lying in court was wrong. Now, there's so many negatives in this. Let me break it down. I hate headlines and stories like this. And there's a paragraph in here, too, that is just mind-boggling because of the amount of negatives that are, that are piled up in it. So the judges reject the claim that they didn't know that lying was wrong. Um, social workers went into court and fabricated a story about a woman abusing her children in order to get her children taken away from her. Complete fabrication. And when it was challenged, I believe on constitutional grounds, they wanted to say that they didn't know that it was unconstitutional, that it was wrong in that sense of of unconstitutional. And so in this story, they're actually trying to argue that somehow, even though it's morally wrong to lie in a moral sense, that somehow the line that they did should be upheld, that they shouldn't have to undergo a, a constitutional challenge, I guess, in civil court for some sort of damages. Um, so look at this. The, um, this is an exchange, and I'm going to actually read to you from the exchange between the judges and the attorney who is trying to defend the social workers who lied in court. Listen to this. So here's Trot, one of the judges on the panel. How in the world could a person in the shoes of your clients possibly believe that it was appropriate to use perjury and false evidence in order to impair somebody's liberty interest in the care, custody, and control of that person's children? How could they possibly be on notice that you can't do this? Attorney just says, I understand. Trot says, how could that possibly be? And she says, I understand the argument that it seems to be common sense in our ethical, moral, dot, dot, dot. He interrupts. He says, it's more than common sense. It's statutes that prohibit perjury and submission of false evidence in court cases. And then Lynn says, state statutes, right? She's trying to nitpick. She's trying to defend it on federal constitutional grounds. So Trot says, are you telling me that a person in your client's shoes couldn't understand you can't commit perjury in a court proceeding in order to take somebody's children away? Of course not, Your Honor. Of course not, he says. Uh, And then one of the other judges says, isn't the case over then? And Trot says, the case is over. And the attorney still tries to talk. She says, "Thus thus far, we have not been presented with a clearly established right that tells us what our clients did, which was remove the children pursuant to a court order. And then she gets interrupted again by another judge, Friedland. The issue here is committing perjury in a court to take away somebody's children. And you just said that's obviously not okay to do. And then she comes back again, according to our moral compass and our ethical guidelines. But we're here to decide the constitutionality of it, and we look to the courts to tell us. 
she's actually spending money, probably our tax dollars, to go in front of the Ninth Circuit and defend lying to take away somebody's kids. If that isn't nihilism, I don't I don't know what is. Okay, I had to just drop the article. It's too gross. Let me go back over to our chat room and see if people are. Uh, and what is this? Oh, they're talking about Ruben. Oh, Section nineteen eighty three civil rights suit is what James is chiming in there in the in the chat room. Yeah, that's what I assume. It's some sort of a civil rights suit, constitutional civil rights. And that somehow this woman's trying to say that your rights have not been violated when these people lie in court. It's, it is just ridiculous. Now, if you do want to call in, like I said, and James, if you do want to call in, you can chime in. But before the last couple of minutes or so, it's uh, 760-888-5817. If not, I do. I've got plenty of program notes left in my overly ambitious selection here. There was one story that Rob Abiera sent me on the Don't Let It Go on her page. And at first I wasn't going to include it. And then I decided that the reason I didn't want to include it is the reason it had to be included, which is that it's just too horrible to face. And, you know, because our country has become so nihilist, these are the 11 Democratic women who we are faced with who might run for president in 2020. They're ranked in order according to Washington Post. I don't know by what algorithm. All I know is that Senator Elizabeth Warren is the one pictured right there. She must be at the top of the list. The article here says that uh, Davidson, a woman named Davidson, put this, uh, Amy Davidson, put together this list of 13 women who should consider running for president. And they say the one name that she doesn't mention who would be without question the strongest potential female nominee is outgoing first lady Michelle Obama. Tell me if that doesn't want to make you barf up your lunch. Uh, But they put to the rankings, number one, of course, Elizabeth Warren. Warren, writes the post here, will be one of the prime movers in the 2020 election. She will decide whether she wants to run, and then lots of other people, including many below her on the list, will make their own plans accordingly. What Warren has that no, no one else does a nationally known name, a massive fundraising base, and a demonstrated liberal record. Lots of liberals wanted her to primary Hillary Clinton in 2016, but Warren passed, leaving the door open to the surprising success of Bernie Sanders, who ran on essentially Warren's message. Warren would be 71 on Election Day 2020, but Trump would be 74, taking age entirely off the table as an issue. The fact that Elizabeth Warren, egalitarian extraordinaire, is at the top of this list, I think, qualifies as an example of nihilism in the United States today. So 11 that they're already saying are going to vie for this here. Let's see here what we've got over here in the chat room. There's some discussions going on that I think I'm I'm not understanding. Okay. Freedom of slavery, et cetera. No. Okay, back over to the list of our stories. Next story from Rob Aviera, the chilling effect of the government's subpar subpoenas. I love this title. This is from Ilya Shapiro. 
it turns out that a website called Backpage.com has had to close its so-called adult section. There's an adult section at Backpage.com. Why? Because it has suffered from, quote, years of unrelenting pressure from public officials at all levels of government. Most recently, what have they endured over at Backpage.com? The Senate's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations has hauled several Backpage.com officials before it for a public shaming without bothering to wait for a ruling on the legality of its, quote, investigation, right? This is what officials are doing, bureaucracy, you know, congressmen, senators, whatever. They'll just harass you, shame you publicly, haul you in front of their bodies for you know, testimony and everything else. And don't bother with whether or not anything that they're doing is legal. Just go ahead and do it in advance of any sort of a ruling about that. Say in California, just before Christmas, then Attorney General, now U.S. Senator Kamala Harris, refiled criminal charges against Backpage's CEO and its former owners in the face of a December 9th ruling throwing her initial charges out. So even though there's an indication that what you're doing when you're going after a company for what it's, you know, its activities, even if there's an indication that it's illegal, yeah, just go ahead, plow on, keep harassing them, keep making them spend money on attorneys because eventually they'll just give up even though you haven't really done anything legal against them. Shapiro writes that these tactics represent a market escalation since September 2010 when Craigslist caved into pressure from a group of 17 state attorneys general and shut down its, quote, adult advertisements, end quote, section. As a federal court had already ruled at that time, and numerous courts have held since, the government cannot assume that ads mentioning sex are advertising illegal transactions, much less coercive sex trafficking. And he says laws censoring such websites have been roundly and repeatedly held to violate the First Amendment, right? So they say, okay, well, we can't do that, right? We can't censor outright. But what Shapiro is saying, this new trend is, he says, you know, the law is one thing. He says less direct pressure tactics are quite another. It's harder to hold government accountable when it tries to hide what it's up to with public letters demands and investigations, even if meritless. So now Backpage has been the target after Craigslist of the same attorney general, members of Congress, everything else, because they have their adult advertising section. And finally, now they are shutting down under this pressure. It's terrible on the one hand. On the other hand, you understand that you can only fight this so much. So... Another one bites the dust that way. You know, uh, somebody who I was thinking of that has endured this sort of pressure was Alex Epstein, um, you know, because he has questioned the government's, you know, story about climate change. The whole thing that Obama says we're just supposed to accept as the problem and just figure out how to solve it. Just shut up and figure out how to solve it. Accept my framing of the problem and just solve it for me. Uh, Alex Epstein is one of the people who has challenged that. And there was a state attorney general in Massachusetts, I believe, who was going after him and writing letters and demanding all sorts of private correspondence and things of, of Alex's and uh, he, F off fascist. 
was his response and it's perfect. And that's what needs to happen against these people. I put a link to my old blog post, Attack Watch as a case of how force stops thinking. Even if they're not making a law directly censoring you, even if they're not able to succeed in court with these various filings and everything else, the fact that they haul you before a committee for a public hearing, all these little things that they do, even if they're not actually stopping you from doing business, they are in a certain sense hindering you from making plans and conducting your business as you see fit. Again, nihilists, the destruction of values. The next example that I have is not technically in United States, but it is happening, I believe, because of something that Obama recently did. Uh, it's probably also the accumulation of all of his policies with respect to Israel. But the story is that Hamas held a rally in Gaza to celebrate the terrorist attack, the ramming, the truck ramming that killed four Israelis days ago. Quote, the message of our Islamic party Hamas is a message of encouragement and support for every jihadi who carries out an attack that puts an end to the acts of the Zionist enemy. End quote. As nihilistic as it gets, celebrating a terrorist attack that kills four Israelis in the Middle East. And this, I submit, has been made possible due to the further emboldening of Hamas and and other terrorists who want to destroy Israel when we decided that we weren't going to veto the UN measure that declares the the settlements to be criminal. Um, So it's just another example of the the nihilism, the destruction that Obama has left in his wake. Now, we draw a line because the rest of the examples or stories that I have to talk about after this are no longer nihilist. Let me go back to the chat room and see if anybody wanted to to say anything else about the nihilism. I've got a couple people hanging on hold, but no one has said... um, uh, Redmond MTB in the chat room says, what's the best way to donate to Alex given his for-profit status, which I like. Alex offers a whole lot of things and several of them for money. So you can buy courses that he gives and he, I think he's about to start a podcast and probably there's going to end up being some you know, for-profit spinoff things about that. Uh, buy his books and give them out. That's a, a way that I'm sure he would love, buy a whole bunch of books. I think he's had programs too where you can – donate and then he'll give out the books. I can't remember. There's a whole lot, but go to center for industrial progress and you can find a lot of cool stuff from Alex. Okay. So on to the non nihilist stories that I've got in the program notes and I better hurry. Otherwise I won't get through all of them. Stuart Hayashi sent me this story and I'm going to paraphrase Stuart, but he posted on the don't let it go on her page with something to the effect of normally We admire these tech billionaires in Silicon Valley, but in this case, it turns out that this is kind of embarrassing. So there are tech billionaires who are asking scientists for help. And what do they want help with? They want help breaking humans out of the computer simulation they think they might be trapped in. Yeah. So they think they might be trapped in a computer simulation 
uh, how could they ever come up with the concept of uh, being in a computer simulation unless they had access to the real world? I don't know, but that's really kind of scary. Um, so go check that out if you like. I don't think it's necessarily nihilism, but it is a divorce from reality. The next entry that I have, it's just the David Bowie obituary from a year ago. I'm having a hard time believing that it's been a year. I mean, in some ways, things are very different for me than they were a year ago. But it's still, it also seems like fairly recently that we lost David Bowie. So it's it's sad. You know, again, so many great talents that we lost in, in the last year. And Bowie to cancer, F cancers, so many people like to say. Johnny Lee, who is also an attorney interested in privacy issues, sent me this next article. Privacy legislation has been reintroduced for male older than 180 days. There has been in our federal legislation a bifurcation. So if you have mail on a mail server that is fewer than 180 days old, then the government would have to present a search warrant or the equivalent in order to have access to that email. But if it's older than 180 days, then that requirement doesn't apply. I guess somehow you have a re, you know less of a privacy expectation in email that you store on a server for longer than 180 days. I don't see why that would in logic be the case. And I guess a lot of congressmen don't either. So they're going ahead and they're reintroducing this legislation, it would require that law enforcement agencies get a warrant, probable cause, particularized suspicion, before they poke around in users' emails and other communications in the cloud that are older than 180 days. It's called the Email Privacy Act. It aims to fix a loophole in the ECPA, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. And I think this is a, a good step and everything, but as I've talked about so many times on this show that some people are probably tired of it. I don't like being at the mercy of legislation for stuff like this because I am of the belief that all, you know, kind of pretense to govern all of this stuff by means of legislation to decide what does and doesn't get covered by the warrant requirement is wrong. That the third party doctrine needs to be entirely eliminated. We need to get rid of that third party doctrine and instead as I've talked about, there's an article I should have linked to it. It's called Don't Tread on My Metadata. If you Google Don't Tread on My Metadata, I've got the only article that's named that. And I talk about the fact that you could look at the common law doctrine of illegal contract as a substitute for the third-party doctrine in the legitimate cases like, you know, you need to, for instance, uh, send a secret agent to infiltrate a mafia, a criminal organization. So, uh, yes, it's a, you know, legislation like this is a step in the right direction, but it's not nearly enough. Okay, so the next, uh, but I do think it's a piece of good news. It is a piece of good news. And the next thing that we have is also a piece of good news. A Texas judge has dismissed the so-called clock boys defamation lawsuit against conservatives. And um, Martin Tickman, who posted this story, and I think uh, Jeffrey did as well, but Martin Tickman commented, he says, I guess that means it bombed, ha, ha, ha. 
A Texas judge has dismissed a defamation lawsuit filed last year by the father of so-called clock boy Ahmed Muhammad against several conservatives. Dallas County District Court Judge Maricela Moore dismissed the suit on Monday, announced the Center for Security Policy. Uh, The father filed the suit in September against CSP, its executive vice president, The Blaze Incorporated, its founder, Glenn Beck, Fox News, and several conservative pundits, including Ben Ferguson and Ben Shapiro, all of whom criticized his son. And then, of course, this suit was dismissed as well it should have been. Oh, you got over here. Oh, people are talking about the red, blue, and the bill pill, blue pill about, oh, that we're living in a simulation, et cetera. Oh, they're having a good time here. Jay in the chat room talking about the losses of the great talents that we've had, like um, David Bowie. He said that Adam Carolla had an interesting twist on it. We are not just lamenting their loss, but the loss of actual talent in our celebrities. It's a rare attribute lately. Yeah. I think that that's exactly right. Okay, this last story I'm talking about just to prove that I can. And the headline is, I can feel bare-chestedness normalizing. And there's a woman who I think single-handedly is trying to start a new movement. And what she wants women to do is to go out on walks, completely bare-chested, so no shirt, topless, And her hope is that as she walks around, people are just going to treat her normally as if there's, you know, nothing unusual about it, as it's just the same as if a man walked around bare chested and things like that. And she says she can feel it normalizing. And she gives examples from her most recent walk where she walked around and maybe a child said something because, you know, children always say things about anything that they see. They're very honest that way. But Um, then the parent came back and just basically talked about it to the child as if it was normal. And so she thought, so if you want to talk about this more and you give me your opinion on the article, you can go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com. I myself, I think I'll stick to walking around with a shirt on and keep a little bit more private. Uh, Thanks everyone for listening today. And I will talk to you again at this same time next week, 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific. And until then, take care.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.